0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And
0: I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome back. So Jackie, I mean, the whole interplay between... The incumbent energy systems, oil and gas and coal versus the whole clean energy thing is just really interesting right now in the wake of the whole Ukraine-Russian invasion, right?
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's been a topic that hits every podcast almost. It,
0: It hits every podcast. And you know, one of the intriguing things that I think about is for most of the past half dozen years before the invasion, there was sort of this notion, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, that Sort of it's the end of oil is nigh and the newer era of clean energy is coming in. And I had to go back to my energy file collection of interesting artifacts and uh, we'll post this one. I've got the card that talks about the Standard Oil Bulletin, which was really the Chevron Corporation Standard Oil of California from 100 years ago on the eve of World War I and talking about how coal was out and oil was in. And you know the the whole idea that these things happen quickly, and even in the when that transition was made from coal to oil, it still took a long time for
1: the shipping. Right? Yeah, in the yeah.
0: shipping, and so you know, I think that there was sort of like parallels almost a, like a century later. We're thinking, okay, oil's out, renewables are in, and nobody, certainly not you nor I, are going to debate that the adoption of things like wind and solar has been absolutely remarkable and amazing and should be encouraged. But the notion that fossil fuels were going to die out very quickly was one that is, I think, you know, sort of steeped in a fair bit of hubris, which uh, also prompted me to write that story, Hubris Defined, which is a whole story around that uh, that card. So here we are today and we want to talk about sort of this interplay between old versus new, clean tech versus incumbent and and how that is. But before we go there, I think we should sort of talk about what's what's going on right now in terms of some of the oil news.
1: Yeah, definitely. So lots of uh, big news last week on the oil markets. So May 31, the European Union made an agreement to ban seaborne imports and Germany and Poland pipeline imports. So there are some countries that receive Russian oil via pipeline that will continue to, but Germany and Mm -hmm. Poland aren't going to. So, most experts out there and agencies are assuming this probably would mean that there's about a 2 million barrel a day loss of Russian exports. Now, this is going to happen in the next six months. Mm -hmm. Um, So, not all right away, but there's lots of uncertainty in terms of this number because so far, a lot of these barrels have actually ended up going to India and China. So, you know, when people say they're not going to take the oil, it doesn't mean that someone else doesn't buy it. Yeah. So, the question is, is that going to continue to happen? Now, the EU did put some restrictions on shipping insurance that is aimed at stopping people from shipping Russian crude. So, that may reduce, you know, how much can get into Asia. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so it's 2 million barrels a day is probably a high number, assuming there might be some amount that, that gets onto the sea and goes to other markets. Yeah,
0: I know that... Uh hearing the reports that India is only happy to take deeply discounted Russian oil and actually put it in storage. And they're also, I mean, India is a huge refinery center, right? They, yeah. They have the, the big tankers of crude oil pull in from all over on coastal refineries. The products come out like diesel and gasoline and all sorts of petroleum products and they get shipped out. So for Those refinery operators in India, this is just a bonanza. Yeah,
1: it is kind of funny, right? Like the Europeans don't want the crude oil from Russia, but if you send it to India, refine it, then they're importing uh, the same molecules just rearranged through a refinery. into. (laughs) That's right. uh, But actually, uh, some data from S&P Global showed that the imports into India of Russian crude are up by something like 800,000 barrels a day uh, Mm -hmm. with the data they were tracking. So, that's definitely happening. By the way, the numbers, when people say 2 million barrels a day, that's assuming some of that. But I guess the question is how much of that will happen. You know, the other thing that could happen is Russia may just stop sending the oil and say, hey, well, if you don't want our oil, we're going to turn off the taps. So we'll see if what that would happen. I mean, this summer would be a really difficult time to do that. That's Historically, Q3 Mm -hmm. is a very big quarter for demand, and so that would be really problematic if they were to try to cut the oil off a little sooner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a number of things at play. I think whether or not they do that will also depend upon the course of the war. I think as long as the war is going well from their perspective, that they may be less inclined to do that sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, it's all very geopolitically charged. But the other big news is the OPEC side, right?
1: Yeah, so June 2nd, a little bit later last week, OPEC decided to ramp up supply. It looks like they'll be adding about 1.3 million barrels a day of production around this summer. Now, this would require Saudi Arabia to produce at 11 million barrels a day. So this is viewed as being the top end of what they can produce sustainably. There's been a couple of times they've gone over that level for a month at a time but most people don't think that they could sustain production for many many months beyond 11 million barrels a day. So we'll see what they can actually produce, but this would imply that there wouldn't really be a lot of spare capacity after this summer if there was a an outage somewhere that was unplanned or something like that. But it is good news, we've talked about it before that there were concerns that the relationship between the Saudi and the US was getting quite strained in the past. Saudi would have volunteered adding supply to the market sooner than this. Mm -hmm. So I think it is good news. It's a signal of increasing cooperation between uh, the U.S. and Saudi, which I think is good for geopolitical stability in the Middle East and the oil markets. Yeah, we'll see what
0: happens when President Biden goes to visit later this month. Oil is not homogeneous. We've talked about like that. There's different grades of oil, much as there's different types and grades of coffee. So when we talk about Saudi spare capacity... At the margins, you know, when they say go from 10.5 to 11 million barrels a day or more, you're starting to get into grades of oil that are heavier and heavier. Is that not right?
1: Yeah, generally, for Saudi especially, as they Mm -hmm. bring on those last barrels, they tend to be heavy.
0: Right, and so there's only a certain number of refineries also that can take that. So, you know, just because Saudi pumps more oil doesn't necessarily mean that the price of oil will go down because it's very grade-specific. And as I look at the prices, I mean, this news has really caused not a lot of impact. No,
1: it hasn't. And I think the the part of the reason is, well, you're adding 1.3 million barrels a day. Now, remember, they were going to add that Mm -hmm. over four months, and now they're adding it over two. Right. They've kind of accelerated that. But at the same time, we just learned that the EU, their decision here probably could result in a 2 million barrel a day loss of supply. So, I think that's part of the reason. That's part of it. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that isn't really being talked about too much is I think this really reduces the chances of an Iranian deal by the end of the year with Mm. the US. You know, If they're going to be working so closely with Saudi Arabia, it's probably harder for them to make a deal with Iran. And I think those barrels are probably less likely to come into the market. Yeah, no, it's all
0: very intertwined, and the Saudis are basically in a proxy war with Iran in Yemen. And so it's all very, very complicated. But I would say there's even one more factor, and that is the news that Shanghai may be opening up and the Chinese economy may be revving back up. And therefore, the demand's pull for oil all of a sudden has become a, a little more robust than it was, say, even a week or two ago.
1: Definitely, yeah. And especially as it's coming into this, the third quarter is always the big demand. You know, demand isn't even throughout the year. There's there's quite a, a profile and it usually grows quite a bit in mm-hmm. the third quarter. So now we've got China coming back. So all of this said, to summarize this section, is although we've got these this new supply from Saudi Arabia, which is welcome, it still looks like a very tight market with very little spare capacity. And generally, that means the yeah, high prices the stick around. prices,
0: $116 yeah. as I look at the screen right now. Okay, well, we talked early on when we opened up this podcast about how difficult it is to get off the incumbent energy commodity. hundred years ago, it was difficult to get off coal and make that switch to oil and mobility. Today, the switch is from the incumbent oil into renewable and there are all sorts of clean tech technologies. We want to talk about the market fall, right? That's happened certainly in the clean tech space.
1: And we are going to post an article that you wrote, Peter, and it was titled in the Financial Post, The Stock Market Has Turned Against Overhyped Clean Tech Companies, and It Is About Time. Mm-hmm. So that's a well, controversial uh, well, title. Well, yeah,
0: I don't make up the, uh, the, the titles when I turn it over to the newspapers, so that is a little bit sensationalized. But actually, yeah, I mean, I think that generally speaking, analysts in the market are saying that not only clean tech, but any tech software companies and other types of tech companies have been overhyped and overvalued. Certainly the multiples have been through the, through the roof. And that the current set of circumstances, rising interest rates, inflation, economic slowdown, so on and so forth, is really taking the risk profile of the average investor down substantially. So any technology stocks that are risky or don't have a lot of revenue, if any revenue, no cash flow, are basically based on expectations of future profitability. They've lost a lot of value.
1: Yeah, and they were pretty frothy. So let's talk about two sections here. First, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about the context for the market fall and just give some numbers there to help understand how much markets have come down and then the implications from your commentary. Mm -hmm. So we'll start off with the uh, context. The Wilder Hill is an index or an ETF that tracks a whole basket of different types of clean energy companies, right? Like hydrogen, electric cars and and renewable energy. And it's down about 60% versus its peak in early 2021.
0: Yeah, I like to measure it relative to the peak of around February, March of 2021. That's when Joe Biden came in and we've talked about it on the podcast. There was all the expectations about trillions of dollars of stimulus for various sectors of the economy, including the green energy economy. That in conjunction with the notion again that electric vehicles are going to rapidly take and displace market from uh, combustion vehicles so that's the peak and so from that peak the wilder hill index which is an exchange traded fund that has a broad basket as you mentioned of these sorts of clean tech companies and some bigger companies they have fallen 60 percent but that's an average i think you can say that these sorts of broad basket indices are not really telling the full story because if you look at the riskier end of the spectrum or the riskier portion of the basket of stocks they represent are down even further, some are down 80%, 90% from that February of last year high.
1: Mm -hmm. As a side note, we talked about clean tech stocks in early 2021, kind of around that time that they were at the high. But that, that's people have lost a lot of money. But mm-hmm. some people really did buy in at that peak. I don't, I don't know if you remember the SPAC craze. Oh, yeah. The special purpose acquisition company, mm-hmm. which allowed a company to be taken public without going through a traditional and long yeah. roadshow and IPO process. So we had this trend in that period where there was these technology companies, a lot of them clean energy companies, mm-hmm. that raised tens of billions of dollars at that peak. And I just wanted to remind you that QuantumScape we talked about at the time because I wanted to go revisit the well, ba- battery company. Yeah. yeah, they're a solid-state lithium battery. So this is a company that didn't actually think they're going to have a commercial product until 2025 when they mm-hmm. went to uh, IPO or through the SPAC. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't IPO. I guess they went through the SPAC, but became mm-hmm. a public company. There's a lot of promise with the technology because it could increase the safety quite a bit. No liquid electrolyte. So We're hearing about Tesla's on fire here this week, so you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about that. And it also could be potentially much higher energy density. So, you know, there's a lot of promise with the technology, but the reality is this is a company that isn't going to make any money for the next at least three years or so. They IPO'd at $24 and then they rose to $114 at the end of 2020 Mm -hmm. at that peak. And today, it's a twelve dollars stock. So wow. some people have lost a lot of money. That have you know the ones that invested at that peak.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's not limited to the battery companies. It's uh, in the hydrogen space. Similar sorts of stories with fuel cell companies, electrolyzers, electric vehicle stocks. I mean, Tesla is the headliner. It's off peak, but the ones that are basically pre-revenue, certainly not profitable. There's a whole list of them. Many of them are off eighty, ninety percent as well. So the fact that people have lost a lot of money, a certain investor class means that they're not likely to come back for quite a while. And that's one of the implications of all of this is that, you know, when people go sour and they lose money, they're not coming back anytime soon.
1: That's a lot of money to be lost. And and I did want to say if we just kind of narrow in since the start of the year, that's when the other markets started to come down. So mm-hmm. to your point, technology stocks yeah. in general but they, they really didn't have an issue until the beginning of this year where the overall market is down about 10%. Yeah. But NASDAQ, which is a measure of more tech-related companies, yeah. right? Yeah, They're tech down about biased. 20%, and Wilder Hill is down a similar amount since the beginning of the year. So since the beginning of the year. that's when those stocks started to really have trouble. Yeah, and, well, and, a
0: lot of funds sort of measure their year, year-to-date year YTD performance, but I think it's important to measure from sort of like peak exuberance, which was last year and the amount of money that's been lost since then. Now, not, of course, not everybody buys at the peak, hangs on and sells at the bottom. I'm just saying, though, along the way down, there were certainly still buyers that were coming in and uh, it's just been a painful slide down for the tech sector as a whole and certainly included in that are the clean tech companies. So the real question is, okay, the technologies are actually still very exciting say whether it's the quantum scape or the fuel cells or whatever. It's just that the valuations have and the price you would pay for these companies has come down. So that has a whole series of knock-on implications that we need to talk about.
1: Right. So you had in your commentary, yet all is far from lost. Mm -hmm. A good clean out of an overhyped market is a positive thing in the long term. So. I guess those people that lost the money may, may not really appreciate that at this point. <laughs> um, but for the health of the overall sector, I agree with you. Yeah. Like, this was too frothy. Like, I don't think actually a lot of these SPAC companies should have ever become no. public companies. No. If you don't actually have cash flow and profit, I don't think the public markets are the place you should be. You're going to no. report quarter after quarter of, yeah. of red ink, right? Yeah. Like So, I think things got a little overheated.
0: Well, that's what's happened. And so, a lot of the companies were also financed. You know, that's where they got their sources of capital at the peak and then because the expectation was there that the stock is always going to go up and I can continue to finance my company at progressively higher and higher share prices. But now that's not true anymore. So we enter into a phase of what I call capitulation. In other words, the company's management and the boards of directors realize that, uh uh-oh, we're gonna have to make the money that we raised from all these people over the last 18 months last longer because we may not be able to go back to the trough to get more money. And so right now, it's again, this is a broad statement on tech stocks that don't have revenue and cash flow and profitability is that they're gonna have to capitulate and get out of denial that the market is probably shut for further financing. And mm-hmm. I, I expect it's gonna happen here. It is happening. I'm, I'm already hearing reports of that.
1: All right, and that's going to result in uh, what you call hunkering down. Yeah, where you basically have to say cost control, slow things down. Now, yeah. that is a problem if you're a company that's five or six years away from actually having a commercial product, because it's well, still going to take a lot of money to commercialize your product. But right. if you're close to getting to a commercial product, you know, maybe by hunkering down, you you can get there. Right? Well, you
0: can. It just depends what your burn rate is and how liberal you have been with your spending, these sorts of environments all of a sudden prompt the boards of directors to bring edicts down onto the company management to cut costs and be much more mindful. And I think this is a healthy dynamic. I mean, we've seen this many times in other sectors of the economy, and now it's come to the tech side of things. And, and it just instills a, a greater respect for the capital and how it's spent and spent more efficiently to achieve commercialization. It also puts the onus on the companies to drive towards commercialization faster.
1: Yeah, to get to profitability so, faster. To get, the prof- yep.
0: to get their products out. And, to profit. and so, the, you know, this is potentially a positive for these sorts of companies is that, okay, we don't have as much money. We're going to have to be a little more frugal and we have to get to the market faster, which is for the benefit of getting these things commercialized.
1: Yeah, yeah it's true. When money comes easy, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily treat it yep. as a yep. finite commodity. I did want to say there was this Wall Street Journal article last weekend, which actually spoke, this was more focused on tech companies, but it Mm -hmm. it basically was titled Silicon Valley Investors Give Startups Survival Advice for the Downturn. Mm, There you go. And uh, it basically said that venture capital firms, so these are firms that are investing in some of these earlier stage companies, and usually these are private companies, was telling that these companies need to cut their costs, preserve their cash, and forget your hope that other investors will swoop in with big checks in the future. And in fact, one of them, and this is coming from Sequoia, one of the Silicon Valley's pretty well-known firms, apparently their PowerPoint (laughs) got leaked and was quoted (laughs) in this article. But it basically said, we don't believe this is going to be another steep correction followed by a V-shaped recovery like we saw after the pandemic. They advise companies to cut expenses quickly and expect it's going to be a long recovery, that they're not going to have access to capital for a while.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, if we use history as an example, certainly when we saw this movie before 20 years ago, it took five to 10 years for the money to come back and the excitement to come back. Now, that's not a blanket statement, and I think that takes us to our next point, which is uh, what I call Darwinism, you know, survival of the fittest. What good companies will still survive through this. Good companies with management that knows how to be more efficient, lean and mean, so to speak, and, and take it through. And they've got a quality product that's driving towards commercialization. They will still be able to raise money. And so it's just that the market is going to be a lot more selective. And I think that's a healthy thing, too.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's like how many battery companies that are probably not going to make it, and Mm -hmm. um, the ones that aren't financed or didn't have enough cash to be able to get to that commercial product may not make it through this cycle, because they can't go back and get more money when they
0: run out. Right, and I think there's going to be more money available to the good companies, and they will be financed with potentially longer-term-minded investors rather than the types of investors that were hyping up these stocks, including meme stocks, you know, that are sort of here today, gone tomorrow. So again, a sort of a healthy dynamic. And then I also think you're going to start to see consolidation of the good companies. I think this is typically what happens is that uh, if you have two battery companies that have more or less the same technology, they're competing with each other, they come together, create efficiencies, create a stronger company and move forward. And I think we're going to start to see that. You'll also see acquisition of some of these companies now that the prices are more reasonable by some of the larger strategic, established big companies. And that's healthy too.
1: I think you're going to see a lot of that. Actually, yeah. you know, if you think about companies like Shell BP, Total Energy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're called now, Total Energy. But they have been strategically acquiring clean energy and saying they right. want to get into that space, but they've been paying up. Sure. And now they're going to look at this. They still have tons of cash flow from their oil and gas business. Right. And they're going to be able to maybe swoop in and, and get some of these. Um, some of these and, and and hopefully their cash flow will allow these technologies yeah. to be advanced.
0: Yeah. And it's not only going to be the oil companies. It could be bigger battery companies acquiring smaller ones that have key technologies And so on. Now, you know, one of the interesting things, certainly we've seen this in the oil and gas business every time there's a big downturn is that the employees, all of a sudden their stock options are out of the money. And uh, when the price of the stock, the shares are high, everybody's cheering and watching the screen five times a day to see how much money they're making. As soon as your stocks are out of the money, your options are out of the money, you sort of don't even want to watch the screen anymore. In fact, then you start looking for another job potentially. And so there's also this high grading of employees amongst the stronger companies.
1: Right, uh, yeah, see, the good people go to the ones that can
0: exactly. show that they
1: have a runway here to develop their right, products.
0: Right, yeah, in an area where there's a shortage of good employees, I think this, again, is a very positive thing where the stronger companies get the best employees to commercialize their products faster, and then that accelerates the whole transition dynamic eventually.
1: Yeah, and getting good people is a real problem. I think for any business these Mm -hmm. days, whether you're a restaurant or you're a technology company, I've heard this a lot from these companies in this space, but really, these are new areas. Like, how many battery experts really are there out there or electric car or autonomous car vehicle experts Mm -hmm. or CCS? So, uh, in this environment of scarce people, I think it's going to add to the velocity of the the employee shuffle here because... uh, you know there are very few good people here, yep. and those companies that can attract them are going to want to get the best people.
0: Yeah. So. Yep. so all this dynamic does is create higher quality companies, and from an investor's perspective, there is what's called flight to quality. In other words, okay, even and the investors become more discriminating, and investors that sort of sat out this frenzy and exuberance and were wiser and said, "Well, I'm not paying those sorts of crazy share prices for these stocks." All of a sudden now, they'll take a second look and say, okay, things are now looking uh, a lot more reasonable. There are really some high-quality companies here that a lot of promise. And so the next generation of companies, I think, are going to be stronger as a consequence of this. And that's why the headline, you know, I think it's a good thing that this is happening.
1: Yeah. Well, and I do think a lot of those big institutional investors that have the really big uh, pools of capital,
0: mm-hmm. I don't
1: think a lot of them were that exposed to this no. because they saw what was happening there. They don't tend to kind of go after cycles like that. So I do think, and I've validated this by talking to some institutional investors, that there's still a lot of long-term capital that's mm-hmm. interested in deploying more money into this space. You know, I think what we've learned is clean energy is not for day traders, and uh, you have to have that long term perspective. And the big institutional providers, whether they be big pension funds or groups that take a ten year kind of view, are, are, are I think going to still be pretty interested in this area and more interested because things aren't as frothy mm-hmm. right
0: yeah, it's it's to the benefit of these clean energy companies to have a an larger anchor of sophisticated institutional investors with patient capital that can help them grow rather than the more speculative investors that just come and go and uh, create volatility and hype and so on. That's... Uh, it's not
1: healthy for the market. Not, it's, it's not healthy yeah. for the market. Well, let's finish off with, uh, you know, the long-term foundations for energy transition investing quickly. You know, I I still think, and, and this is kind of just following up on this point, that there are still some really good reasons why over the longer period, this area is going to do well. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm looking at some forecasts here from Bloomberg New Energy Finance and Depending on their scenario, the Mm -hmm. spending in this space is going to go up four times over the next, the annual amount of money spent in new capital projects in clean Mm -hmm. energy and energy transition is going to go up somewhere between four and eight times between now and and 2040. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a lot of growth and and I think the long-term investors will see that. I do think we're going to get a lot of policy support. We already have some and, you know, part of this cycle was really because there was this expectation that Joe Biden was going to bring in all these, policies and he didn't but I still think that policy help is going to come. I don't know if you've been following this but there is some rumor now that although the the big build back better bill in the US was scrapped, there is a growing possibility that there'll be a smaller bill come out, a bipartisan bill with both that both parties will support with some of the really important things like tax credits on on clean energy and and smaller incentives. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, and we think of what's going on in Europe. Here in Canada, like the policies are still going to be quite supportive for investing in this space. Uh, I think, as we just discussed, there's still a lot of institutional capital interested. Higher oil and gas prices actually help a lot of these technologies. It makes more sense to, yeah. to use alternatives to natural gas and oil if they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So I still think that uh, there's a lot of opportunity here. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it maybe the end point would be that these energy transition. And energy technology stocks and companies are down but not out?
0: No, they're not down and not out by by any stretch. Some are, some will be, it's the inefficient ones. And I sort of would question these sorts of growth numbers and spending and debate them. I, I don't have a conclusion how much it's going to be. But one thing that the situation that we described creates are leaner and meaner companies that are going to be more mindful about how they spend their money, especially in this inflationary period. And that's the healthy thing. So that means that whatever the top line amount of dollars that are gonna be spent on clean tech, that it will be spent more prudently, which means that a dollar will go further in actually creating the innovation and the commercialization that's needed to make them more mature.
1: And, well, and ultimately, that kind of speaks to them being more profitable more quickly. And if you're a profitable right, business, you're probably right. going to be more successful, yeah, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's the end point. But uh, there's no question. I think certainly over the course of this year, probably into next, it's there's going to be turmoil. There's no question as uh, as the dynamics evolve. So near-term pain, long-term gain.
1: Well, we'll wrap it up thanks for joining the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.